Last week, the White House, that is the Trump White House, released a major scientific report on climate change with the darkest warnings to date about the consequences of climate change for the United States. For comment, we turn to Tom Athanasiu. He's the director of EcoEquity, an activist think tank that argues for emergency climate strategies that protect the poor. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Everybody Knows, Climate Emergency in the New Age of Inequality. And he writes about climate change for the nation. We reached him today in Berkeley. Tom, welcome to the program. Good to be here. This report, it's called the National Climate Assessment, was mandated by Congress, issued by 13 federal agencies, made headlines for its predictions about the effects on the American economy of failing to take significant steps now to slow global warming. Tell us about the report and its conclusions. Well, the report is really important politically, and it's actually a very fine piece of scientific work as well. The reason it's so important politically is that it's made in the USA, so it cannot be denigrated as, you know, some product of opaque international bureaucracies. And um, uh, contrary to what Mr. Trump has said when he, uh, when he dismissed it as having been based on a worst-case scenario, uh, the report is about half, consists of about half simple observation in terms of what's actually happening in various regions of the, of the United States, and then half scenario-based analysis uh, that's strongly rooted in, in the current science. The, the so-called worst-case scenario that Trump was referring to is actually a business-as-usual scenario. So this report, it's 1,656 pages long, concludes that what the headline was that climate change could slash up to a tenth of gross domestic product by 2100, more than double the losses of the Great Recession a decade ago. But of course, economic losses are in some ways not the most important to, to us. No, economic losses are hard to understand, particularly when they're projected that far out. And insofar as they reflect what's actually happening in the physical and biological world, well, that's what we ought to really care about, isn't it? But the authors of the report, and I, I know one of the principal authors quite well, they knew what they were doing. You know, by, by emphasizing the, the economic consequences of climate uh, disruption, they hoped to break through some of the ideological defenses, which, which the elites, as well as the, the, the ordinary people of this country, have, have you know, built up against dealing with climate change. And, so, so they, and to a certain extent, it seems that they did. It, they tried to bury the report by, by releasing it in the early afternoon, the day after Thanksgiving, but they didn't succeed in burying it. And, and probably... The, the headline about economic losses had something to do with that. The report said that the impact of climate change, quote, will not be distributed equally. People who are already vulnerable, including lower income and marginalized communities, have lower capacity to prepare for and cope with extreme weather and climate-related events and are expected to experience greater impacts. Uh, the report recommends 
actions for the most vulnerable populations that would contribute to a more equitable future, close quote. That's the kind of issue that your organization, EcoEquity, has been concerned with. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, that's a great thing about this report, that it's clarity about the the differential impacts between the rich and the poor. With respect to my own work and the work that we do in the international negotiations, the distinction is that rather than simply talking about the differential impacts on the poor, which will be extremely important and extremely severe, we talk about equity as a gateway to high ambition mobilization as well. For example, we're really interested in equity within the international climate regime and how the international climate regime cannot possibly succeed unless it foregrounds distributional justice, international distributional justice and distributional justice within countries. You've mentioned a couple of times the IPCC report. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a group of scientists convened by the United Nations. How does their report compare with this national climate assessment that was mandated by by Congress? Well, first of all, they completely support each other. There's There's no air between the two reports. The politics and framing of the two reports is quite different. The, the IPCC report was mandated by the UN climate negotiations really as a consequence of the demands of the mo- more, most vulnerable countries on the planet who rebelled against what they saw as the reification of the two-degree target, which was too dangerous, particularly for small island States and for low-lying countries like Bangladesh that would be very, very, will be very, very, very heavily impacted by rising seas. And when, when the IPCC was mandated to do a special report on 1.5 degrees, the, the 1.5 degree target, you know, there was a terrific amount of skepticism as to whether or not they, the, the IPCC would, would be able to support that target as an achievable goal. And the, the big news about that report was that it, A, is achievable, though tremendous social change will be necessary to, 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 to reach the goal, and also that the traditional, the, the, the developing countries were right. The traditional target of two degrees centigrade is absolutely, unacceptably, terrifically dangerous. The, the, the national climate assessment that just came out has a different scope. It focuses on the United States and on its various economic sectors and on its various regions, and it it uh, it's extremely accessible and and extremely uh, newsworthy in its framing. Like if you live in California and you've been worried about the fires, well, you can go to the to the section of the report on on the West and, and, and read about the drying and read about the, the changing rainfall patterns and all of the, uh, you know, and it, will, it will move you, right? And if you're in Florida, you can do the same thing with respect to the rising seas and the porous, 
porous landmass. So it's it's a different framing, but you know the scientific community is is a global scientific community at this point, and and doesn't necessarily respect the the walls that Mr. Trump would have it put up would have put up. I understand you're going to Poland in December. Uh, tell us about your trip. Oh yes, I'm going to Poland in just a couple of days, and I can't really say that that I'm looking forward to it. It's it's uh, but you know once you get there, it's it's uh, it's engaging and it's it's tremendously important. You know the the cops happen every year. The cl- the, the the climate summits happen every year, and and it, periodically there's a summit that gets a lot of press, like Copenhagen, Kyoto. And most recently, Paris, which, which in my view was a breakthrough. And uh, but what's what's happening now at the Poland summit is that the follow-up language that actually you know mobilizes and operationalizes the Paris Agreement is being negotiated. And this language is extremely important, even though it's it's somewhat technical. Um, but you know. The thing is that this is also going to be the the climate summit where the the Trump people are really going to come to it uh, full of beans and pushing coal, and it's also the climate summit that is uh, directly after the release of the IPCC report on 1.5. So there there is going to be a lot of drama, though it hasn't yet gotten uh, much press. Uh, last question. If we get two degrees of warming instead of 1.5, what will the consequences be? Boy, the consequences of two degrees of warming um, would be extreme. Uh, you know, to, to, uh, to, uh, to, a first, uh, to a first approximation, you know, uh, you know, there would be large areas of desertification and a tremendous number of people suffering from lack of water. There will be many, many more problems with disease vectors. There will be a very, a very uncontrollable amount of sea level rise, enough, enough to inundate enough of, of the coastal cities on the planet that it will really put a lot of people on the move. It will put a lot. It would put a lot of people on the move. It will probably uh, irreversibly destabilize the West Antarctic ice sheet um, and probably mobilize a lot of fossil methane, which is in the, the particularly in the the northern forests. and And I think I think the key thing to say here is. Um, though it's hard to say and, and hard to, to really take in, is that uh, we're now discovering that the two-degree target that was once considered to be safe is actually probably, two degrees is probably where we're going to start finding the tipping points and the tipping cascades. And it, this is not to say that we are doomed. We are not doomed. But it, the situation is extremely serious, and we have to not go there. We have to stabilize the climate system before it gets to two degrees, if at all possible under any circumstances. And that's why you're seeing an increasing 
uh, conversation in the climate movement about emergency mobilization about that's why you're seeing this new extinction rebellion movement that's starting in london uh, it's it's uh people are now reading the writing on the wall and it's going to change the political tone of everything having to do with climate tom athanasiu he writes about climate for the nation read him at the nation.com tom thanks so much for talking with us today Okay, very good. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 